FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's Friday, May 7th, and as we reach the end of another week on Political Rewind, we have big, big political news to talk about, and I want to get right to it. Um, As most of you know, you awoke to the news this morning here in Atlanta, but across the state as well, since Atlanta is obviously the most influential city in the state. Um, You awoke to the news that Keisha Lance Bottoms last night announced she will not seek a second term as mayor of the city. She didn't offer any specific reasons for why she's not going to run again, uh, but she did uh, release a letter, which we'll talk about on the show today, and she uh, basically put most of what she said in that letter into a video, which was also released. Let's just listen to a very little bit of what she says in the video. As Derek and I have given thoughtful prayer and consideration to the season now before us. It is with deep emotions that I hold my head high and I choose not to seek another term as mayor. Despite the many unforeseen challenges that our city has faced, I am immensely proud of what we have accomplished together. Keisha Lance Bottoms will not run for re-election. We have two terrific people to talk about what all this means, why it may be happening on the show today. It's Friday, which means my partner from the AJC is Patricia Murphy. She is a political reporter at the AJC, but of course she now writes the Political Insider column, which you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and she oversees the jolt, uh, which you can read on AJC.com every morning. Uh, Welcome, Patricia. I'm glad to have you with us. And let me also introduce uh, GPB News uh, political reporter Stephen Fowler, uh, who you hear on the radio, of course, and also whose uh, stories you can read at gpbnews.org. Thanks, both of you, for being here. Uh, So let me start with you, Patricia, and then Stephen. Let's go right into it. What the heck is the reason, uh, since we're left to speculate, that Keisha Lance Bottoms isn't running for re-election, Patricia? Well, she did not say in that lengthy video that she posted on a specific website that is called DearATL.com. The mayor didn't say in her lengthy letter to Atlantans why she's uh, decided not to run for election. Uh, Nobody is speaking on the record right now. The mayor has a 10 o'clock press conference this morning Mm -hmm. where we assume we'll get more insight into her thinking. Um, But we have spoken with people close to the mayor who said that she simply... uh, did not have the heart to run. Her heart was not in it. I think it's been an incredibly exhausting time to be an executive anywhere in the country. Um, But uh, between running free election, uh, the fact that COVID is still not over yet, uh, there there are a number of challenges we can get into that are facing bottoms right now. Anybody it would, it's, it's a heavy lift for anybody doing that and running free election. Um, I think was just more than she uh, was looking to do. Stephen? Yeah, you know, uh, Richard Fawcett with the New York Times had a great framing on this when it broke last night, saying that uh, 2020 was not a great year to be a mayor because you had the pandemic, 
because you had racial justice protests and a lot of police killings, and you had the political unrest of the 2020 presidential election. And, you know, uh, the, the stock of Keisha Lance Bottoms has shifted greatly in the course of the last year and a half. She was on the short list to be considered vice president. She allegedly turned down a position to be an ambassador and, you know, part of the Biden administration. And now she's throwing in the towel on a second term as mayor. And so something had to happen and kind of the world happened to Keisha Lance Bottoms in a way that I don't think this is how she anticipated her first term going. And with a bruising battle ahead, likely with at least one top tier challenger, uh, you know, I, I think like Patricia said, it, the, the motivation is not there to put herself and her family through this situation for another potentially four years. Um, so I want to ask you both about the letter and the video. I, I have to say, Stephen, I, I found it odd in, in, in a lot of ways. So first of all, um, it almost felt in the way, and we'll, Amelia, why don't we find the link to that letter and, and the video and post it on our social media platforms. But um, it almost felt the video was heavily produced. You heard music in the short piece that we had about piano playing. It was kind of like a Hallmark uh, greeting card <laughs> video in terms of the production of it. Um, but Stephen, it almost felt like a video that started out at some point to be the video she would use to launch her re-election campaign. Uh, and then somewhere in the middle of it, there was a sharp turn in another direction. It became a video about her not running. Right. I mean, the things that she does say in this letter and in this video touts her accomplishments through the, uh, the first years. You know, she talks about getting through the cyber attack that hit the city. She throws shade at... We just lost you, Stephen. You know, uh, we just lost even there. You go. Uh, yeah, there, there we go. Yeah. She, you know, she talked about, you know, throwing, throwing shade at Kasim Reed and the federal investigations that of the former administration and all of her accomplishments. And if you took out, you know, the, the really the first page of the letter ends with the pandemic and then it pivots towards this announcement of why she's not running for reelection. And the fact that she said, you know, the questions will be asked. Can she fundraise? Yes. Can she win again? Absolutely. Is she afraid of a competition? Never. That's what she says in this letter and in this video, but it does make you wonder if how many of those things might have been true. Patricia? Yes. The video, you're so right. It's so much B-roll that could easily have been uh, in the can already for an announcement to run for re-election. It's beautiful. Some, some highly paid producer somewhere has put this together. Um, but it also indicated to me, because it has a sit-down of her reading this letter, this was not something that she decided last night. Um, and so you have to start to think when her thinking changed, because um, Joe Biden did a fundraiser for Bottoms um, at the end of March and raised half a million dollars. And that is the type of step that you certainly don't take. You don't accept that kind of help from the president unless you really are committed to running. Um, and then uh, something has changed drastically between now and then. Um, something else that really struck me about that video is it's just basically a visual goodbye to an empty city hall. Um, it's just really something to look at. I've, I've just never seen anything like it, to be honest with you. Um, and so uh, it, it looked to be somebody 
really weighing, you, you could go either way with this one and, and I'm going to leave City Hall. So, um, again, I'd love to hear from you both on this. Patricia, um, there was a sense in which Keisha Lance Bottoms, and certainly argue with me if you think I'm wrong, Keisha Lance Bottoms was at her best in moments when she was able to be an inspiring figurehead. We saw that during the aftermath of the George Floyd demonstrations here, which turned violent, which, when she stood with Killer Mike, when she said with great compassion and made a national name for herself as a mother, my heart bleeds for George Floyd's uh, mother, but you all have to go home. You have to listen to the words of Martin Luther King Jr. You have to have nonviolent uh, protests. And, and she was really wonderful in moments like that. Um, and I will say that during the campaign four years ago when she faced a field of opponents, she was at her best in the debates in the same way. When she talked about her long, the long history of her family in Atlanta uh, being uh, a, an, an, having sl slave ancestors. Have, in some ways, I feel like Keisha Lance Bottoms was an inspirational leader but I think there are questions about how much she wanted to get down into the dirt and play in the real uh, arena of having to um, uh, uh, deal with the hardest tasks of being mayor. Well, and the, the role of being mayor, there's no way to avoid getting dirty. I mean, this, particularly the city of Atlanta, there is such a balancing act between the needs south of the city and north of the city. Um, and uh, I totally agree. Rhetorically, she is just gifted. And when she told uh, groups or protesters to go home that night, that made a huge difference for this city. And I think it saved the city from what really could have been really violent outbreaks. Um, and so she'll always have that. And that really made her a breakout national figure. Um, but in the meantime, you know, the rest of the story since those George Floyd protests, um, the killing of Rayshard Brooks, I think, has been incredibly difficult. Also, it has just been an, a very violent year since then. Homicides are up 20, per, I'm sorry, 60%. Homicides are up 60% since 2020. Um, the city of Buckhead, the idea of Buckhead seceding is a real concept and a real danger to this mayor. And that has everything to do with crime and the thought in Buckhead that um, not only is Mayor Bottoms um, doesn't seem capable of uh, of intervening and in the violence in Buckhead, um, there's a political disincentive for her to do that. And so the city, so Buckhead is ready to bolt. That would be devastating to any mayor. Um, and then you have to look at APS, Atlanta Public Schools, still have to get back on track after COVID. Um, there are just so many situations. Even the um, the officer who shot Rayshard Brooks was reinstated this week by the Civil Service Board. She got a ton of criticism for that. Um, so it's just the reality of running this city. It is a tough job, and there are no easy answers. Stephen, I want to hear your take on that before we get to the first break. Right. So, you know, I live inside the city of Atlanta, and I think uh, people that I've talked to leading up to this uh, decision and uh, even after the news was sort of breaking about this is that uh, many people in Atlanta feel that there's a disconnect between the rhetoric of Keisha Lance Bottoms and the actual leadership of how she navigated the city through these things. There's a feeling that she spent more time 
campaigning for Joe Biden than she did for the people of Atlanta. And, you know, say what you will about Kasim Reed's nature and tactics as the mayor before, but he was a lot more active and involved with how things were done in the city of Atlanta. And so it's a difficult thing to balance, especially as you had these unprecedented events happen with the pandemic, with this wave of police shootings and racial injustice. And so, you know, it, it, it was a moment that she met in many ways, but a moment that really washed over uh, the, the mayor's office in the last couple of years. There is a lot more to talk about here, including who do we now see stepping forward to uh, run for the job of mayor of Atlanta, and we're going to do that. Um, but I, I have to say, we, we're finishing today our Spring Pledge Drive. We do this twice a year. We ask you to help support us. I know many of you out there send me notes saying you have been supporters of ours because you like Political Rewind so much. I believe that it's days like this with huge news, like Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, deciding not to run for re-election, that lead you to want to especially pay attention to the really great panelists who come on the show, like a Patricia Murphy and Stephen Fowler today. So if you're one of those people, here's how you can help us as we move forward with our show and GPB Radio. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The AJC's Patricia Murphy, GPB News' Stephen Fowler joined me for the show today. Stephen, uh... Big question now is, uh, we already have two candidates in the race. Felicia Moore, city council president, announced quite a while ago. She was taking on Keisha Lance Bottoms, criticized her heavily for the crime rate in the uh, uh, city. So she's a uh, leading uh, contender, essentially, for the job. Um, But where you expect more people now to jump in. Uh, Joel did a great job this morning laying out a lot of possible candidates, Stephen, but uh, everybody seems to think it's Kasim Reed who is possibly the most likely to jump into this thing. Well, you know, Kasim Reed has been making the rounds lately on radio interviews, um, doing everything but openly saying he's going to run for mayor. In fact, he told some people that uh, he wasn't going to get back in the race, but that was before Keisha Lance Bottom said that she's no longer running for re-election. And I suspect that she didn't call him up and say, hey, this is coming. So that's something to watch out for. Um, you know, the, the biggest issue that candidates are running on is the rise in violent crime in Atlanta. That's something that kind of transcends partisan identities about, you know, should it be a Republican or a Democrat, but people are really fired up about crime. I mean, one name that I've heard as a potential uh, is Mary Norwood, who ran and lost a couple of times uh, to Keisha Lance Bottoms. But I don't think she's going to switch from running for a city council seat to challenge, uh, to enter the fray of things. I mean, the thing to also remember is that, you know, the way the power structure has been lately is that it's been a strong mayor, weak council, uh, format. So, you know, the council president position, which Felicia Moore has, only has so much power, which is why you see Felicia Moore 
taking the next step up and running for mayor. And so the question is, you know, with a new council president and with the new council members coming in, there are a lot of uh, younger progressive candidates running for a lot of these new seats, is what the overall makeup of Atlanta city government is going to look like beyond who the mayor ends up being. Um, by the way, I also, Patricia, should mention the other candidate who's declared in this race is Sharon Gay, uh, who's now at Denton's, uh, but she has been a major player in public policy matters in the city of Atlanta for a very, very uh, long time. And I, I don't want to neglect to mention her in, in terms of this. But Patricia, you, you uh, Kasim Reed, uh, it, it seems to be the inside favorite to get into the race, but you mentioned some other really intriguing names. Uh, you mentioned uh, Jason Carter ha as someone who possibly might be interested in it, and you have others as well. Uh, yeah, so Jason Carter obviously would already come into uh, the race with huge name ID. He's also extremely uh, still politically engaged and really interested in uh, the future of the city. Um, other names that we've heard, possibly Kathy Willard, who ran for uh, mayor uh, last cycle and came pretty close, um, almost made it into that runoff. Um, maybe Doug Shipman, who has already announced he's running for city council president um, and uh, could switch over to the mayor's race. We know he's interested, obviously, in a higher office. Um, but really the name, um, you know, along with Mary Nord and the other ones that we've mentioned, the name that people keep coming back to is Kasim Reed. Um, I know that he has gotten some encouragement from um, business leaders in the area. Um, it's not just totally out of left field. I think he is interested and some people are interested in seeing him run. Um, he comes in with a lot of positives and negatives if he did get in. Um, the biggest positive is that everybody knows who he is and in a fielded crowd in a fielded crowd in a crowded field um that's an enormous advantage um also i think his image as a strong leader sometimes too strong for some people's taste but as a strong leader um <laughs> would be appealing to a lot of voters who are looking for a strong executive at this point so um, he's the one uh, I'm watching most closely, um, but others could certainly come out of nowhere. With such an unexpected announcement, you could really have some unexpected names pop in real quick. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. We should remind everybody that mayor, uh, the, the race for mayor of Atlanta is a nonpartisan race, but certainly uh, being a Democrat or Republican plays into your base. Um, Mary Norwood, should she choose to jump again into the mayor's race instead of the city council seat that Stephen believes she'll continue in, will have probably continue to have a lot of support from conservatives, Republicans, um, again, despite the fact, Patricia, that it is a nonpartisan race. Uh, it's a nonpartisan race. Um, it is a largely Democratic city. So, you know, you think you, yes. have, you have to give uh, the thumb on the scale to somebody who tracks um, closely with the majority of voters. Um, Mary Norton and Stephen could speak to this more specifically, but Mary Nord, I believe, filed a brief um, uh, to say that she had some concerns about election integrity in the city as well, right after Trump made his complaints. And so I think that really hurt her among um, some uh, less conservative voters who uh, weren't happy to see her take that step. Yeah, uh, Stephen, she filed a friend of the court brief uh, in one of the lawsuits that alleged fraud in Georgia's election, right? Yeah, you know, she was right there. Um, they redacted her name 
improperly so you could read it says i mary norwood but also there aren't too many people that said as a former candidate for atlanta mayor who lost by several hundred votes i believe there was you know these problems <laughs> so it, it was she wasn't necessarily trying to keep herself secret but you know uh, you wouldn't necessarily think with all of the issues swirling around Atlanta, claims of election fraud and problems there would play into this race. But if Norwood does jump into the race and does emerge as a top uh, contender, maybe getting towards a runoff, I would certainly expect that to come up because there are plenty of people in Atlanta uh, that do not uh, necessarily support that false claim of election fraud. And so that could come into things. But I think it does get back to you know, thinking about Felicia Moore and the things that she's running on and primarily about the city's crime wave. And it's one of those things that more is more befitting of a nonpartisan mayoral race. That's not something that's neatly a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. And that sort of broad coalition of support of people backing her because of her stance on crime is the type of coalition you would need to be able to get through an incredibly divided Atlanta. All right, we are going to have a lot of time in the weeks ahead to talk about the dynamics of this mayor's race here in Atlanta now that uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms has taken herself out of the running. Um, and we will do that. Uh, I'd like to uh, change topics, if I may, and talk about this other interesting withdrawal that took place yesterday. Um, Stephen, uh, the search firm, the executive firm that was doing the search for the chancellor of the university system of, for the university system of Georgia, without explaining why, withdrew. Said we're not going to be part of this anymore, and we don't know for any factual reasoning uh, that it has to do with Sonny Purdue. But certainly, the question as to whether Sonny Purdue is being uh, quietly tapped to be the next chancellor of the university system has generated enormous controversy and raised questions about the objectivity with which the search will be conducted. Yeah, so there has been a big search, yeah, to lead uh, Georgia's higher education system. It's a huge position that has a lot of power and a lot of prestige because of Georgia's higher education uh, system. And so there have been a lot of reports that Sonny Perdue, former Georgia governor and former Trump agriculture secretary, was being kind of groomed and considered for this role. And he doesn't have maybe the education experience that a lot in the higher ed system and students in particular would want. And it seemed like it was kind of a backroom deal, which is not necessarily how you want your university system chancellor to be picked. And so, you know, the, the fact that this executive firm has bowed out is just the latest development. There have been uh, calls for investigations, and actually there have been, I think, some investigations opened into the potential for undue political pressure to be put into the search process. Um, Patricia, uh, the current chancellor who is uh, uh, retiring uh, this summer, Steve Wrigley, he too had a very strong political background. He was one of Zell Miller's key advisors uh, during uh, Zell's terms as governor, but he also had an educational background as well. He served in the university system of Georgia. Sonny Perdue has none of that. Um, so the question becomes, is he really the best choice for the job? You had a, you, the AJC listed the extent, the broad powers 
that the chancellor and, and the Board of Regents has, it oversees one of the biggest empires in the state of Georgia. That's exactly right. It, this is not a ceremonial role. This is not an ambassadorship. This is a really heavy lift with a lot of competing dynamics, especially right now as we get into questions about how money will be spent within the university system, what kind of preferences are important to be making in the university system, a lot of talk about um, diversity and equity and inclusion. Um, and uh, there has been a student-led movement opposing Sonny Perdue. And I think that was the, the beginnings um, of when this started to really come under some scrutiny. A regional accrediting agency did flag this as a potential problem um, if it did become politicized. And there is lots of precedent for, um, for governors and secretaries of state to become uh, heads of universities. That is not at all unusual. And it tends to be a really easy shift over. Um, and you can certainly see Sonny Perdue as the head of a university. Um, but to be the head of the university system really is much more of a functional executive role. And that is where um, it's less, it's a lot less frequent to see a former governor or former senator make that transition. Of course, we should not forget that to the extent that Brian Kemp has a role in helping select the next chancellor, uh, we shouldn't forget how much Brian Kemp owes uh, the Purdue cousins, David and Sonny, who were the ones who brought him to the attention of uh, Donald Trump as the candidate that Trump ought to support for governor of Georgia, which made all the difference in the world to his primary campaign, Patricia. Yes, absolutely. But if you're an executive search firm conducting a search and you think it might already be kind of in the bag, uh, maybe you're wondering why you're going to all this work. Um, certainly there are a lot of other places that you could put a, a, a well-liked former governor. Yeah, I was interested in the fact that I think you it was, it was you reporting this morning that the search firm has already taken the job off their uh, website. So we'll watch that story as it moves forward as well. Okay, um, you were both, Stephen Fowler and Patricia Murphy, at a fascinating Republican event earlier this week in Marietta. I want to talk about that in a couple of minutes, but um, it's our final chance on this show to ask you to support GPB Radio. Stephen Fowler's reporting, the work we do at Political Rewind, all the rest of the shows we bring you from NPR. Here's how you can do it. Patricia Murphy, you and Stephen Fowler covered uh, the same event up in Marietta earlier this week. Uh, House Minority Leader, U.S. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was in town for a big GOP dinner. Went up there to the Marietta Diner where he was, uh, he attacked Major League Baseball for pulling the All-Star game out of the ballpark right down the street uh, when uh, the, because they were objecting to the election law passed here. And he, Patricia, cited a figure that was has been used broadly by especially Republicans that this has cost Cobb County, the state of Georgia, something like $100 million uh, that they would have seen coming in uh, if the All-Star Game had been played here. Uh, talk just in general about that event, and, and then let's uh, get Stephen in and talk about it in more specific detail. Yes, yeah, so the event uh, featured Kevin McCarthy, who is the House Minority Leader up in Washington for the Republicans. Um, also, he had with him uh, Congressman Drew Ferguson and Congressman um, Barry Loudermilk, and they were at the Marietta Diner, which was packed, by the way. It happened to be at lunchtime, so it was very hard. It was literally standing room only inside the diner. Um, and the three congressmen were there to 
um, uh, slam Major League Baseball. They also blamed uh, Joe Biden for the fact that Major League Baseball had pulled out uh, pulled the All-Star Game out of Georgia in protest of the Republican passed Senate Bill 202, which is the new elections overhaul. Um, Kevin McCarthy said that because Joe Biden lied about it and because Major League Baseball never took the time to read the bill, these are generally his words, um, it is Joe Biden's fault and Democrats' fault that this has happened. Um, and uh, to me, there was just a lot of, um, I wrote about it for my column, um, a lot of uh, kind of fear-mongering. Um, Drew Ferguson talked about the hostile work environment for Delta employees after Delta spoke out against the bill and employees don't feel comfortable there anymore. And uh, Congressman Loudermilk said that big business is trying to kill us. Um, McCarthy talked about the culture of wokeness and how uh, conservatives are under attack and um, just a, a real list of grievances, but no, no examples of how to fix the situation. And so close to a really in Newt Gingrich's old district where he hatched the contract with America that was really quite forward looking and presented to voters as a positive uh, way to change uh, the dynamic in Washington. To me, it showed a, a real change, a real pivot for Republicans from what I call from, from engagement to enragement. And uh, that's what was on display on Tuesday. Uh, Stephen, you were up there as well. Give us your insights. Yeah, I think building on what Patricia said, the enragement comes with a tonal shift. You know, there was the conversations about wokeness and the conversations about cancel culture and things. But really, it was a way to kind of dress up this criticism of the Major League Baseball decision and of the move under the guise of small businesses and under the guise of COVID recovery and how, you know, this big bad decision was harming those businesses. But the diner we were at was more than five miles away from the stadium. And the diner owner owns, I think, five or six different restaurants. It was popular. It was full. It was so popular even during the pandemic that they built two drive-throughs for people to get the food. So the business that they used to highlight their example didn't quite fit the same image of other struggling small businesses that we've seen in Georgia and throughout the country during the pandemic. And so the message kind of rang a little bit hollow uh, in regards to who they chose to highlight. But, you know, it, it does continue to show that this election law is going to shape the overall message for both Democrats and Republicans coming into the next a year and a half of this election cycle. It doesn't actually matter what the law does. It's what these parties motivate their voters to think it does. And it seems that the tact that we're seeing from Republicans is that uh, on the one hand, the law makes it easy to vote and hard to cheat, as they say, but uh, on the other, that it is a tool to get back a little bit more to the realm of policy about small businesses and other things is kind of whitewashing uh, the outrage. I've been interested in the economic impact figures that Republicans, again, most likely, and the Cobb Chamber, I understand that they uh, want to uh, show the country that they're losing uh, something by not having the all-star game. And of course, they really are. But I, I think about it in similar terms to other large-scale events that a city attracts. I covered 10 presidential Convention, uh, ten, you know, yes, ten different uh, national conventions, Republican and Democrat, 
during my 20 years at uh, WSB-TV. And I guarantee you that in every single convention city, the story that the local newspaper ran by the end of the week was, well, we didn't really have the benefits economically that we expected to have. And Patricia, it, it, it makes sense that you'd want to cite these extravagant numbers, but they really are, are promoting perhaps a false narrative. Well, I think that the $100 million figure that's uh, batted around uh, came from tourism officials when they were trying to bring yeah. it to Atlanta. Um, and of course, it would have been so much fun. It would have been wonderful. And the businesses certainly would have benefited from it um, at a time when they really have been struggling, especially uh, the concessionaires, especially people at the battery. Uh, those businesses have really have had a hard time. Um, however, it really doesn't change the fact that um, Major League Baseball did this in response to a Republican passed bill, not because of anything that uh, Joe Biden or Stacey Abrams said about it. They did it because of what uh, players at Major League Baseball said about it and their own genuine concerns about what they see as an effort to suppress the vote. Um, and that is going to be, um, as Stephen said, a real, a, a real battle that we're going to continue to see straight up through 2022. There's no question about it. Um, one thing that I think the congressman could have said was that um, it hasn't really been as bad for Georgia as people had feared. There has not been a stampede of businesses leaving the state. Um, the, it was a risk to pass the bill and to sign the bill. Um, and uh, given the enormous amount of blowback that they did get from Democrats and independents, um, but the, the stampede of businesses has not left the state as Democrats warned it would. And in a way, you'd see that as a Republican victory, but there were no victories on the menu at the diner. Um, I, I love the expression of, what was it? Say it again, from uh, in, in what to, to enragement? What's the first part of that? Oh, thank you, Bill. I call it from engagement to enragement. Engagement um, to enragement. Yeah. Steven, and it's yeah. the question of, is are you inspiring people or are you just making them mad that day? You know, it's it's well, two different choices for a party. And uh, they're Republicans are making their choice right now. Go ahead, Stephen. I'm sorry. Well, no, no. I want to what I want to turn to in terms of that, Stephen, is the battle going on in the Republican conference in Washington uh, right now, which certainly will have in the long term an impact on the Republican delegation, at the very least here in Georgia. Uh, and that is the drive, which we now expect to be entirely successful to remove Liz Cheney from her leadership role in the Republican conference and replace her with Elise Stefanik, who used to be considered, who ironically, Stephen, has a more moderate voting record than does Liz Cheney, but who very wisely, from a political uh, opportunism, opportunism point of view, decided to align herself with uh, Donald Trump during the judiciary impeachment hearings and uh, is a star on the rise. And boy, if there's not an example there of enragement uh, being the word of the day, I don't know what is, Stephen. Yeah, and it's it's a thing that, uh, you know, House Minority Leader McCarthy said before he came to Atlanta that day that, you know, he believes that members of the caucus have uh, lost faith in her ability to talk about the message 
And so it's not necessarily a problem with her policies. It's not necessarily a problem with her leadership, but it's the message. And the message that the Republican Party, both nationally and locally, is trying to push is the false claims of election fraud and is the Trumpian uh, method of doing things. I mean, look no further in Georgia to an internal poll from Vernon Jones, the lifelong Democrat turned Trump supporter turned, you know, uh, second coming of beating Brian Kemp, apparently. Uh, the internal poll there, I believe, looking at the crosstabs of that poll, uh, that more people identify themselves as Trump conservatives than evangelical conservatives or, you know, moderates or social conservatives or fiscal conservatives that, like, it is the message that is dominating the Republican Party. And you're seeing that play out here in Georgia with the grassroots level battles that are happening at the county GOP conventions where longtime, more moderate operatives are being unseated by these, you know, pro-Trump insurgents that haven't really been involved with party politics before, but are driven by the engagement of the enragement brought about by Trump. Yeah, uh, Patricia, as recently as last night, Elise Stefanik was on Steve Bannon's uh, podcast and repeated her claims that the election was a fraud. And by the way, uh, to bring it home to Georgia, Patricia, um, she had alleged uh, a, a short time ago that in Fulton County, Georgia alone, there were 140,000 votes cast by underage voters and others who couldn't vote legally, a number which is so outrageously distorted and has no basis in fact whatsoever. Well, yes, and let's make no mistake about where all of this is coming from in Washington and here in Georgia. It's all coming from Mar-a-Lago, Florida. This is all being driven by Donald Trump and by his anger over the last election. And it just is laying in such stark, um, in such a stark scene that it's no longer enough to be conservative as Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger certainly are. It's no longer enough to be a Republican as they both are. If you are not a Donald Trump Republican is there even space for you in this party anymore? And um, we've seen both of those two leaders, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Dunk, censured by Republican parties uh, for fault than simply standing results. And so um, it is really just narrowing, um, narrowing the focus and um, the appeal of Republicans at this point, I think, because it's and principles, it's about then. And we talk all the time in politics about it's a game of addition and not subtraction. And when you're subtracting, when you're subtracting people like Liz Cheney and um, and uh, punishing people like Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger from your party, that to me is just a party that is narrowing its focus and appeal instead of expanding it, heading into these really important midterm elections. Um, so speaking of Mar-a-Lago, uh, Stephen, I asked about this on the show the other day, and nobody seemed to have an answer for it. What was Burt Jones, State Senator Burt Jones, doing down at Mar-a-Lago posing for a photograph with Donald Trump? Do we, are we hearing anything about whether he is considering jumping in to oppose uh, either Brian Kemp or to jump into that lieutenant governor's race? Well, I was talking to a Republican operative about that earlier this week, and they said, uh, I don't even think Burt Jones knows how many races that Burt Jones is being drafted into. Um, I mean, the one thing that's clear <laughs> is that, you know, uh, going down there to be with Trump 
is probably the precursor to running for something and to having Trump's endorsement for something, whether that's governor, whether that's Senate, whether that's lieutenant governor, or even Senate, and then challenging for Senate pro tem once he's reelected. Who knows? I mean, the field is unsettled, to say the very least, about who's going to run for what. I mean, right now, you would have expected four or five challengers for Brian Kemp, but all you have is Vernon Jones. Right now, you know, there are more people running for Secretary of State than you might expect. So that's how we're going to uh, keep an eye on in the next couple of weeks. All right. Um, Stephen Fowler, you get the last word in today's Political Rewind. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, Stephen, and for all the work you do here at GPB News. And Patricia Murphy, you know how much we love having you on our Friday shows. Your Sunday column uh, will uh, pop up online, I think, in the next little while, if it's not already there, so people can see what you're talking about uh, very shortly, if uh, not until Sunday when the newspaper comes out. That's it. We end another week here on Political Rewind. We want to send you back one more time to tell you how you can get involved in supporting GPB Radio. Um, in the meantime, I hope you all have a great weekend. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask. Yep, put it above your nose. And since you've probably already been vaccinated, go out and try to convince a number of other people how important it is. They should, too. But do it nicely. Please. See you all next week.